Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The world is full of hate. I certainly see a lot of it sent my way online, but people who hold less privilege than I do see so much more. That hate always present around us has taken some of the joy out of just being human. Our guest this week is trying to fix that. Kai Chang Tom is the author of several books, including the newly released Falling Back in Love with Being Human, Letters to Lost Souls. Trans people <laughs> are exhausted, yeah. but right now, it, there's just a lot going on. And what really has called me to course is this latest bill from um, Oklahoma that would ban gender-affirming care up until the age of 26. Unfortunately, this year's Pride comes amidst a tidal wave of Republican attacks on LGBTQ rights, especially for trans kids. More than 130 bills targeting transgender rights specifically were introduced in state legislatures this year. A trans advocate fighting for my rights in Texas. When I like first went to Austin to testify, I knew what to say, but I was only sick. I just said like, let me be a lady and go to the restroom. That's all I said. I'm asking you to love your family more than you hate mine. I'm asking you to love your family more than you hate mine. Hi, I'm Kai Cheng Tom, and something I'm passionate about is looking for understanding in every kind of person, even the worst kind of person, because I believe that there's something good inside all of us. Sorry, not sorry. Kai Cheng Tom, thank you so much for being with us. Welcome to Sorry Not Sorry, and I really want to dig in to falling back in love with being human. But before we do, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. Thanks so much. I am so excited to be here, Alyssa. So I am a mediator, a life coach, a facilitator, and an activist based in Toronto, Canada. I'm also an author. I've written a bunch of books, in a bunch of different genres. And my whole thing is really the work is aimed at helping other people, myself, to get to that place where we're able to imagine connecting with folks across different perspectives, different beliefs, different values, so that we can get to a better world. And I think the tricky thing about that is often when we do that, we encounter folks whose beliefs are harmful or hurtful, people who are advocating for violence even. And so I'm always looking for the way to find connection without condoning harmful behavior. 
connection. It's interesting because as I'm sitting here listening to you speak, the ideal is to think that we had that, right? And then that somehow, whether it be social media or the rise in authoritarianism, has changed that. But I don't know that we ever had that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we're trying to get back to connection, or do you think that we never really had it in the first place? That's such a good question. I suspect that you're right, and we never really had it in the first place. I think that maybe there were moments in time or particular places in the world where maybe folks got closer. Like I think about how some of um, the major spiritual traditions evolved, and in their best forms, I think maybe people got close to developing connection in temples or monasteries in certain places. But then I think we lose that. And if we look at the Buddhist tradition that teaches about this cycle that we do of getting close to enlightenment, and then we forget, and then we have to get close to it again, and then we forget. And I think that maybe what's happening in um, the age of like social media, COVID, all this like rise of fascism, is we're in one of those forgetting periods. Yeah, and I like that perspective. I also find it very... <laughs> You know, being as someone who is incredibly inspired by Buddhism and Hinduism, I find with Buddhism in particular, it's so interesting how they need to find that in isolation. And I wonder, not that it means any less, but I just wonder if it's even possible. I certainly don't need to tell you that the world we live in is really harsh, where trans people are the target of not just individual hate, but of large institutional hate. As a trans woman, how does that affect you? What are some of the ways that you feel hate? And do you feel like feeling that hate enables you to know what the remedy is? Yes and no. I would say is the hatreds that I experience in the world are, yeah, they go from the tiny and personal to the vast and systemic. And I'll start with, you know, systemically, it's terrifying, right? There's advocates now out there in, in the States, in Britain, they're starting to be here in Canada now that are saying there should be legislation against trans people being able to participate in sports, against trans women being allowed to use public washrooms. And some of these laws are passing, right? There are laws that are anti-drag, but what they're really saying is that nobody should appear trans in public. So this is really scary because I'm really starting to think about to what extent are my basic human rights and freedoms going to be limited? Now, that hasn't happened to me here in Toronto yet, but it's happening to folks very close to me geographically. So that's pretty terrifying. On a more day-to-day, -day, sometimes I'm really lucky, sometimes I'm not, but I have had people come up to me and threaten me or say disparaging things about trans people to my face. And then on a really intimate level, I think this is the one that trans women both love and hate to talk about. My romantic and intimate life is one where I do have to worry if a guy that I'm on a date with might suddenly snap, go into a transphobia-fueled rage, right? Unfortunately, I have had friends who have been seriously harmed or even killed by the men in their lives. It's just awful, right? So there's that. Uh, does experiencing that hatred help me to know the answer or the remedy? I like to think so. Again, it's one of those things that comes and goes. Sometimes I'm like really in touch with my more enlightened self. And I'm able to see that the hatred directed toward me is really based in fear, right? All these laws are about fear of the different, fear of being corrupted or contaminated. Let's turn now to a mental health crisis uh, in Utah. Trans kids 
are now prohibited from seeking gender affirming care in the state thanks to a new law passed by Republicans. But Marissa McPeck Stringham, a mental health therapist in Layton, Utah, told the 19th News this. Six of her clients, all transgender teenagers, said they were experiencing suicidal ideation caused by the state moving forward with that ban on gender affirming care. And she didn't stop there, adding this. Who knows what I'm going to see this week? If one trans kid takes their life because of this bill, the blood is on your hands, Governor. And actually, what, what I really believe is that people who hate and fear trans people actually desire the freedom that they see inside of us and our embodiment, but are so trapped in themselves that it feels threatening to want that, right? I think that's where I am when I'm enlightened, but sometimes I am not enlightened. And I just want to live in my bedroom for the rest of my life. So I, I go back and forth. It's wild because preparing for this interview, I was reading about you and you've lived so many lives. And it really seems like you are the embodiment of this idea that humans contain multitudes, that we are bigger than our vessels and hard to define by single identities. And no matter how hard external influence tries to put or project identities onto us, and I wonder if you feel that, and if so, how has it informed your work? Yeah, absolutely. I could never be satisfied just being one thing. You know, who, who could? I would go crazy if I was just an actor, and if I didn't write, and if I didn't paint, and if I didn't garden, I would go nuts. Of course, right? Like, you're so many things, and you have so many brilliances and so many things to say. Yeah, you have to be allowed. You have to find ways to express all that. and. Yeah, me too. I really think of that as an expression of the human divine, that we can be so many things and we dream so many things and we're stuck in this ridiculous colonial patriarchal culture that says, especially women, should only be maybe one or two things. We can be so many. And I guess, I don't know, I've just indulged myself, you know? I don't know about you, but I'm just like, I am going to be like a, a therapist. I am going to be a sex worker. I am going to be a writer. I want to be all those things. And so I've just tried them. And what's interesting, maybe you felt this too in your many careers, Alyssa, there's like a spark of me that is common to all those things that I've done. And I also feel like if we were to take acting, right, in my acting career and everyone's acting career, it's really dependent on other people's opinion of your talent, whether or not you get to do it. So if I were finding fulfillment in only that, I would be a miserable human. So for me, it's always about like what fulfills me in my heart, in my soul. And it's many things. It's not just one thing. You know, sometimes one thing can bring me joy for a little bit. And I think, you know, part of the issue, and mind you, I'm very aware of the privilege that I have to say, yes, I love to watercolor paint, because most people are living paycheck to paycheck. But I do think that there is a certain level of stress and anger and animosity because of the system that keeps people away from their families, away from experiencing life, to continue to grind because of someone else's definition of what success looks like. And I think that we need to come to that conclusion. 
And we need to figure out how to fix it because I don't know that we will ever connect again. There's not enough hours in the day for most people to connect with each other and put food on the table. It's just that alone is a full-time life. It's not even jobs anymore. You have to give up a whole life to make ends meet. And I want to talk about falling back in love with being human. And I want to start with the dedication, which reads, For all the monsters who are still waiting to be loved. I love it so much. I think this truly gets to the heart of the book before the book even starts. Tell us about the dedication. No one has ever asked me that. Thank you so much for this question. No one has asked me that. Um, yeah, the dedication is to the monsters. And it's inspired by the dedication to the novel um, Station 21. Like, So this book is about falling back in love with being human. It's me writing letters to people that I hate, right? But trying to love them. Diverse voices. We need diverse writers. We need diverse stories. Um, and we need, um, we need the kind of, of stories that allow people to dream. Like dream outside of the images and stories that are given to us um, by mainstream media, by dominant media, dominant straight media, dominant gay media. Um, a story that tells us that the only story we're hearing is about like white, young, thin, beautiful people, or like old, dead white guys, all of these dominant narratives. We need, we need more voices to compete with them. The hidden side of that is, in some way, all the letters are letters to me, because I am the person that I hate and I'm trying to fall back in love with myself, right? I see myself as a monster. I think to some extent, every human I know, trans people in particular, <laughs> um, are narrativized as monsters. We've appeared in film and literature as disgusting and dangerous creatures so many times. I think that just has to get absorbed into the psyche. But, you know, one of my favorite acting teachers, actually, he always said that there is great universality in the specific. And so being trans is this very specific experience of being told you're a monster all the time. And when I lean into that and write about it, what I often discover is my readers who aren't trans really resonate as well. So the dedication is about trying to reclaim the part of ourselves that we hate. So here's the question, okay? The big question. Why? Why work to hold love for and send love to monsters who have created so much hate and harm for both you personally, but also for our communities and our institutions? I know the ideal of it, and maybe it is just the hope for it. You know, there's two kind of good answers, and then one kind of middle answer. The idealist answer is, oh, but if we love people, then eventually maybe our society will be better and we won't hurt each other anymore. And personally, I think that's a nice ideal. I don't know that we're going to see that world, at least not in my lifetime. But the, the more day-to-day -day answer, the one I really feel in my bones is just I am a loving person. It makes me feel good to love and to feel compassion and to understand others. It means that the oppressor, the abuser, have not taken my humanity away from me. And I will never allow them to do that. So that's the why that really keeps me going. I will not ever allow anyone to take my compassion. And I think a lot of that has to do with faith, right? And faith has been a huge part of your life. And it seems that at its best, this idea of holding love for all people is at, you know, the heart of many faiths. Did your faith inform 
the writing of this book or how did faith inform writing this book? Mm, absolutely. So my mother is Christian evangelical. My dad is like loosely Buddhist. And so these two things come together in me. And I'm much more intense about faith than either of my parents are. But I think it's something very beautiful about both Christianity and Buddhism. I mean, Christianity has caused some trouble for trans people in its more extremist forms, right? But the thing that I've taken and hold in my heart from Christianity is this idea of grace, which is that, of course, we're going to do bad things. But we are also capable of receiving love just for being human. I personally just believe that because I don't know about you, but I do bad things all the time. <laughs> like I don't mean to, but it happens. I want to receive love despite that. And I know I have to give that love in order to receive it. And then Buddhism, I think, really tells us that it's okay for there to be paradoxes. It's okay for us to put love out in the world and know that it might never uh, get returned. But there's something important about the process of, of doing that anyway. And that's what I think really shows up in, in this book. It's grace and being okay with the unsolvable mystery of what's unfolding around. The manipulation of faith. That's the thing that is, I think, hard for me to wrap my head around. And it's like a co-opting. And it feels like these extremist groups have this specific mission to co-opt everything that is good and somehow use it in a way that is for hate or judgment or whatever. And I think that organized religion has a way of just doing that, right? Like, I think anytime you have a captive audience, whether it be a priest or a pastor or anyone who's up there on stage, they hold a lot of power. And oftentimes they are not preaching the word of God or the good of Jesus. They are indoctrinating their community with their own beliefs. The Diocese of Worcester says all Catholic school students must use names and pronouns assigned at birth. On top of that, students have to conduct themselves in a way that's consistent with their biological sex, including dress and bathroom use. And they want to be honest. What does the church teach about um, sexual identity? Um, you know, as Catholics, we believe that the, not only is our life a gift from God, but our sexuality is also a gift that from birth. It's incredibly difficult for me. I grew up Catholic, right? So often I say I'm a recovering Catholic. I got married by an Episcopalian priest because I did feel like it was important to have some sort of religious ceremony. I'm sending my kids to Catholic school. So obviously, I have so much hope for my faith and my kids' faith because the Catholic religion should be about community service. That's it, helping those less fortunate. And I want to instill those things in our kids. So I still have so much hope. And I wonder if you think that faith is an innate part of who we are as humans. Have we been imprinted with that faith? I think we have. I really do. Is it harder to not have any faith? Like, is it more of a conscious decision that you have to make to not have faith? Do atheists really have to work hard at it? I suspect they do. I suspect that having no faith at all, you've got to, like, restrain yourself because you're afraid that your faith will let you down. And it takes a lot of work. Also, the awe, right? Like, the awe, which I feel awe is such an important part of appreciating all of it, right? But if you don't have a specific thing to thank, 
I look at nature or whatever, and I'm in awe, right? And I say, thank you, God, for this beautiful tree. Not that I know if God is necessarily responsible for the beautiful tree, but just to have this place for it, a place for my awe. (laughs) I don't know if that makes any sense. It completely does. I think what I hear you saying is whether it's God or like some kind of divinity, we all need a relationship with like the spiritual, the more than like the day-to-day like mucky stuff. There's beauty in the world. If we resist faith, then we have no way to have a relationship with that beauty. That's it, Kai. Is it harder to find love for people who have used or manipulated that faith in order to spread a message of hate? Oh, yeah, I think it must be. Because if you listen to those people, everything they're saying is really just about trying to make other people afraid so that their followers will do what they say. And I just can't imagine how awful that must feel to live in a world where you've corrupted and manipulated faith to make it all about fear and like taking control of people. I think that the folks who are, are doing that are doing so from like a, this really like empty place. And what they're doing is they're trying to fill it with power and like control over others. And it doesn't work. So they just need more. And it's like an addiction. You mentioned before that the book is written as a series of letters. Do you think that writing it that way made the book feel more personal to you? Or will it feel more personal to your readers? And I guess, is the purpose for each of us to find a bit of ourselves in one of these letters? Oh, yeah. It definitely made it more personal for me. And I I really think it will make it more personal for readers, too. I love the letter format, Dear Whomever. It's just so personal. It's so intimate. And each letter really is written to, like, a specific person. Do these people exist, or is it an archetype of a person? Most of them really exist. There's maybe two or three that are archetypes, but of the 30 letters, I think about 27 are written to specific people. (laughs) Your first letter is to trans women, and you write, Dear trans women, the only way to live as a being cast as irrevocably monstrous is to embrace a monster's power. And I think it's such a compelling choice to dedicate the book to the monsters waiting for love, to set the expectation that the monsters are the people who spread hate to you, and to immediately just claim that title. Let's unpack that a little bit. Totally. There's sort of two definitions of monster that get played within the book, and I think that are big in society. And one is like the monster who is truly doing evil, harmful, vicious things. And the other is the monster who is just unusual. And people say that they're bad because they're unusual. And the thing about these two definitions of monster is they get very confusing. People say trans women are evil and bad, but really we're just different. And then, you know, I think that we would say the real monsters are the ones who are out there advocating for hate. What school districts are most of you guys in? What Moms for Liberty has become most famous for is claiming school libraries contain books with pornographic content and for trying to get some books removed. Some of those books listed do talk about sex, but according to the Supreme Court's definition of obscenity, they're not porn. I've read a lot of criticism of your group. People say that this is kind of like a a moral panic, that people have an irrational fear of what's going on. We're not looking to to ban books. We're not looking to burn books. We just need to get back to a system where 
parents know what their kids are learning and for the most part it's educational and not political. One of the books on your list is Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. The reclamation part of this for me is saying, actually, maybe all of us have something like unusual and also maybe even a little bit harmful inside of us. But if we know it and we're not afraid to face the fact that we're fearful, that we can be jealous, that we can be gossipy or whatever, then we really can start to take steps toward being better people. The power of the monster for me is the power to make people think, right? Like the power to break free of uh, traditional social norms and just be who you are. I don't think I want to live in a world where there aren't any monsters. I just want to live in a world where the monsters are kind. Is there a letter that was particularly hard for you to write? Yeah, this is funny. There's um, a letter in here somewhere in the back that's just the words, I forgive you, about 87 times over and over. And that you know probably wouldn't strike most people as the hardest one to write because I just copy-pasted the words many times. But the poem is to a specific group of people. I was at a party years ago where a random person actually came up to me and started trying to strangle me. I'm not really sure why. We didn't know each other. And that person like, was, I think, extremely inebriated. Like They didn't understand what they were doing. So I actually am kind of okay with that person now. But there was a room full of people who watched that happen and didn't intervene, which is like astounding to me. And so the idea behind this poem is that there's one I forgive you for every person at that party who saw that it didn't intervene. And truthfully, I was like, I don't know if I forgive these people. <laughs> I was just going to say, do, do you forgive them? I think it's aspirational, right? I think it's I'm so upset about it. Yeah, that is trauma. That is the definition of trauma. And then to think that all those people didn't help, that is also traumatic. I think in some ways that's more traumatic because I can really get, if you're high out of your mind and have some trauma of your own, then yeah, maybe you'd attack a stranger and you wouldn't know what you're doing. I can get that. But I can't imagine that a whole room full of people could just watch and do, like, I can't understand that. But I think the forgiveness piece is that I want to try. In my lifetime, I want to understand how that kind of bystander effect could occur. Because I don't think that those 87 people, however many it was, I don't think that they woke up in the morning and thought, today I'm going to ignore a murder. <laughs> you know, like, they didn't want to do that, I think. But they did. And I want to be curious about why. Have you spoken to any of them? Yeah, I think so. If quite a few people said, I don't remember this happening at all. And I was like, okay, well, that's fine. And whatever. And then a few said, it looked like you were in control of the situation. And then a very small number said, yeah, you're right. I think it was just two people. Two people said something along the lines of, I just froze. Yeah, freeze is an actual thing. Is there a type of person or a person that you most Hope reads this book? I actually really hope that in my head, I see a 19-year-old who's really mad at the world, has maybe already experienced some of the unfortunate traumas that children and adolescents experience when they're different. I hope that young person picks up this book and thinks, all of these letters are for me. Like, all that love in this book is for me specifically. In between many of the letters in the book, there are like these small activities and things that almost turn this book into a workbook or a roadmap to find a way to hold space and love in your heart for the monsters. Why was that important to include? 
It's partly because I used to be a therapist and I just can't resist like giving people homework. But on a more serious note, like I'm a spiritual practitioner, right? Like I believe in practice. It's wonderful to read. But I think that reading doesn't do much unless you actually start to embody the things that you're reading. Does faith require activism for us to be active? Well, you have to use your gifts. You know, faith without works is nothing. So not, not everybody has to be an activist. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman prophesied years and years ago that I would travel the world and preach to millions of people. And I remember, you know, and I have traveled the world, and I don't know if I'm a preacher, but through my work I've, I've spoken. And, and now I try to speak more in public. But I asked my pastor, I said, well, does that mean I'm supposed to be a preacher? He says, well, no, you already have a pulpit. So he didn't say stay in your lane, but, <laughs> but you know. Mm -hmm. So try to be an agent for good. You know, for that, that's what I'm all about now. I'm in the service business. But we don't know how to embody things necessarily because we don't get taught. So. I just thought I'd help. All of it takes practice. Exactly. You have to do it. Yeah, my mom, who was raised in a volatile home, has always felt that she has a tendency to continue that generational trauma, but she calls it holding down her monster. She'll say it out loud. I'm holding down my monster right now. Just give me a second. And I've never forgotten it. And it makes more sense the older I get that we all have this thing, this monster inside, and it could be generational and it could be situational. But it does take practice to hold down that monster. So it just reminded me of that. And by the way, she was able to break a lot of the uh, generational abuse that had come before her. And I think a lot of it was just about acknowledging that it was there and being conscious and smart enough that she could create a different life for her children. So, yeah, I'm very proud of what my mom has been able to do in her life. You know, and it didn't come easy right? It definitely came at a cost for her and her being, but she did it. There's a recurring image of fire throughout your book, and it seems both destructive and a force of creation for you. Was that an intentional choice? What does fire mean to you? It is like a recurrent symbol for me. I think it's such an embedded cultural thing. And it's that I think I play with this fire thing again, because it in Christianity, the idea of fire shows up so much as like the idea of hell, right? Like torture, you're going to be tortured because you're sinful. But in, in Buddhism, the idea of fire is about like purification and cleansing of the soul. And I think I like to dance between these ideas. I really believe that conflict and even violence, they're so destructive, right? But if we take the time to learn from them and like to develop our wisdom through conflict, then I think we can become better people. It's kind of like what story you were telling about your mom, actually. We have trauma, we experience violence in our lives sometimes, and we could let that turn us into replicas of the people who committed violence against us. But we could also take the opportunity to become better and wiser, like your mom has. And I think this is what fire means for me. It's painful, it burns, but also if you're with it in just the right way, then it can illuminate path forward. 
I feel like there's this thing that we don't do anymore that for probably thousands of years, if people had a hard day hunting or gathering or just trying to survive, the community came together around fire and danced. Yeah. And chanted and made guttural sounds to get it out of the somatic experience and throw it into the fire. And it just doesn't happen anymore. We hold all this trauma in our bodies and with no like way of dancing around the fire in a community aspect, making sounds together and whatever it is. I really like this question. If one of the monsters you dedicate this book to wrote a similar letter to you, what would you hope it would say? So when I think about getting a letter from someone, I think, okay, so that would mean to them, I'm the monster. And I definitely have people in my life where I've behaved badly toward them, right? Or like where I have regrets about how I treated them. And I guess my hope is that the letter would acknowledge all the bad things that I've done to them. Like they would talk about the impact and trust me to hear. But I also really hope that letter would say, I understand that at the time you might have wanted to be a better person than you were, but you didn't know how. I think that's what I would really, in my heart of hearts, hope to hear. And finally, what gives you hope? So I'm lucky. And I get to work with a lot of children and teenagers um, in my life, as well as adults. And just in general, children and teenagers give me more hope than most adults. But particularly, I think that there's so much wisdom in the, just like the embodiment that kids and teens have. They do scream. They do love to gather around friends and like do connection. And we're always getting them in trouble because of that. And teenagers, especially, really know their inner monster. God, they know the parts of themselves that they hate. And because life is so enhanced and heightened at those younger ages, I've gotten to see young people do terrible things to one another and then repair with one another. And that gives me hope. I have so much faith in Gen Z whatever the younger generation after them is. We've got to do our work too, of course, as like older folks. But I just, I get so, so hopeful when I look at that younger generation and I see what they're able to do. Do you feel like we put too much pressure on the younger generation? The older people have to make the pathway for the younger people. Yeah, no, we can't just sit back and say, young people are going to fix the world. We've got to fix the world and then they're going to live it. Exactly. Kai Cheng Tom, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much, Alyssa. Such a delight. I'm experiencing this hearing and I'm struggling whether I respond or launch into this question as a legislator or from the perspective of a woman of faith. Because... I cannot, it's, it's very difficult to sit here and listen to arguments in the long history of this country of using scripture and weaponizing and abusing scripture to justify bigotry. White supremacists have done it. Those who justified slavery did it. Those who fought against integration did it. And we're seeing it today. And sometimes, especially in this body, 
I feel as though if Christ himself walked through these doors and said what he said thousands of years ago, that we should love our neighbor and our enemy, that we should welcome the stranger, fight for the least of us, that it is easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into a kingdom of heaven, he would be maligned. Love is hard, even in the best of circumstances. Sustaining love, achieving love, and doing the work needed to give and receive love is incredibly challenging. It is so much harder loving those who hate us, who fear us, who wish us harm. I certainly don't always succeed at it, but it is this love, this grander macro-level love, that is at the heart of so many faiths and philosophies. This love, especially for those monsters who are waiting to receive it, is aspirational. And if we are able to achieve it, can be transformational. Imagine how the world would be different if the people who are attacking trans kids and their families led instead with love. And think about how their entire argument just diminishes. Imagine if we too led with love. What would transform in our lives? It has to be something we all want to find out. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.